0: The following podcast is brought to you by the Santa Monica College Associates, the SMC Associates, enhancing student excellence.
1: Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, on this wonderfully crisp, sunny, clear Cesar Chavez day, a day dedicated to struggle, memory, and triumph. It is most appropriate to celebrate literature, so it is most fortuitous that... uh, our guest, uh, Viet Wen, Nguyen, uh, comes to us on this campus to share with us his work uh, on such a day as this. So everything is, all the stars are properly lined up, I think. My name is Hari Vishwanada. I teach in the English department, and I help curate uh, the literary series, which is really made possible by a, a collaborative effort of a number of people on campus. Uh, the event staff, the media staff, uh, the SMC associates, uh, the community relations department, uh, the English department, and several other groups on campus. But ultimately, it is possible to bring all these different groups and people together to have this kind of an event. We are now in the 16th year of this series. It is only possible because of you, uh, students, faculty, Uh, staff, and sometimes members of the community who endorse this effort by regularly showing up for these events. And it's because you show up, it's possible for me, uh, semester after semester, to go to these different groups on campus, uh, sometimes outside campus, and tell them, hey, support this effort because there are people who are demanding it. So I wish to thank all of you for coming and continuing to uh, attend this this series every semester. Viet Tan Nguyen is an associate professor of English and American Studies and Ethnicity at the University of Southern California. He's the author of Race and Resistance, Literature and Politics in Asian America, and the novel The Sympathizer. I understand that a new novel is coming in the near future. I hope. (laughs) Okay. All right. Um, His articles have appeared in numerous journals and books, including PMLA, American Literary History, Postmodern Culture, and Asian American Studies. Uh, At this point, I just want to thank you again for a very rich website that you have established. Uh, If you are interested, it's vietwen.info.info. Uh, It is a wonderful website uh, about our author. Uh, It gives you not only information about his books, but also his experience in and interest in teaching. And what I found very useful is it uh, 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 makes available many of his uh, critical essays he has written about uh, various issues in our contemporary culture, about literary works and also about uh, teaching using technology in the classroom. So it's a a diverse group of essays on a variety of subjects that all of us can be interested in, so I appreciate your making it available um, free to anyone uh, on the web. His short fiction has been published in Manoa, Best New American Voices, uh, and several other journals. Uh, an award-winning teacher and scholar and writer. He has been a fellow of the American Council of Learned Societies, the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study at Harvard, and the Fine Arts Work, Fine Arts Work Center, and also has received fellowships and grants from you know, many foundations, including the Luce, Mellon, and Asian American, cult, Asian American Cultural Council, and the Huntington Library. I thought I would share with you a couple of excerpts from... Uh, his novel, The Sympathizer, which he will talk about this morning, uh, to whet your appetite. That is my American dream, said the poet, that no matter the clothes I wear or the food I eat or the language I speak, my heart will be unchanged. This is why we gather here tonight, ladies and gentlemen. Though we cannot be home in reality, we can return in fantasia. And the second excerpt, from the same novel, We should be proud of selling soup, Madame said, or owning a hole in the wall. That's what one of our customers called this place. We don't, owe, we don't even own it, said the general. We lease it. Their moroseness, sorry, their moroseness was matched by their appearance. Madame's hair was pinned back in a librarian's stale bun when before it had always been worn in a glamorous bouffant or beehive that recalled the go-go days of the early 60s. She, like the general, wore off-the-rack clothing consisting of a mannish polo shirt, shapeless khakis, and the American footwear of choice sneakers. They wore, in short, what almost every other middle-aged American couple I had encountered at the supermarket, the post office, or the gas station wore. The sartorial impression was to make them, like many American adults, look like overgrown children. The effect enhanced when those adults were spotted, as they often were, sucking on extra-large sodas. These petit bourgeois restaurateurs were not the aristocratic patriots I had lived with for five years and for whom I felt not only some fear, but also a degree of affection. Their sadness was my sadness, too, so I turned the conversation to a... toward a topic I knew might lift their spirits. So, I said, what's this about the restaurant funding the revolution?
0: Thanks very much for that kind introduction, Professor, Professor Bishanada, and thank you, thank you all of you for coming here during what I think is probably your lunch hour. Um, to hear me speak. So looking out at the audience, I, th- I think a lot of you are students, and what I want to do is situate the books that I've written in the context of how I came to write them. I started off as a student, and somehow I'm here today as a, as a writer of books. You can be, too, at some point, hopefully. Um, and the comment that this is Cesar Chavez, Day reminded me that the first class that I took in college that really influenced me was an introduction to Chicano studies, at UC Riverside and I had grown up in San Jose in uh, a community that was dominated by uh, Vietnamese and Mexican Americans and yet I had gone to this very elite all boys Jesuit college preparatory school that was mostly all white. So to go to college and to be confronted with courses and with professors that would introduce to me the complex history of How we all became Americans or might not have become Americans, the diversity, the struggles, the inequality, the movements for justice in this country that began in that Chicano studies course was very meaningful for me. And as I was telling Professor Amushinata, one of the things that did happen to me at UC Riverside going to a public school was I also tried to get into a fiction writing class, which I could not get into because as a public school there were too many students for too few seats. And I think that was a really critical moment in my education because instead of becoming a fiction writer, I became an academic instead. Um, But eventually, I mean, the thought, the dream of being a fiction writer was always on the back of my mind. I was always writing. And eventually, when I transferred to UC Berkeley, I finally got the chance to take a creative writing class with Maxine Hong Kingston. I don't know how many of you have read Maxine Hong Kingston or heard of her. I mean, she's a very famous writer, although at the time I was 20 years old, I didn't really appreciate that. So I got into a writing class. It was a class of 14 students, small seminar room, and every single day I would fall asleep. This is not really something that I would recommend to you, but I share that story because it affirms the possibility that it doesn't really matter who you are in college. It doesn't predict who you're going to be 20 years later. I look out at my own students. Sometimes they fall asleep in class. I don't get upset because I think, hey, that was me way back then. And the way that I became a writer, is that I matured. I listened to the words of advice that Maxine Hong Kingston gave to me at the end of the class. Go seek counseling, she said. And that was probably true. I was probably very alienated. I didn't actually go seek counseling through an individual. I sought counseling through learning how to write. So I worked out my issues. I worked out my identity. I worked out my struggles intellectually, emotionally, politically, through the act of writing. And that meant writing both in the sense of writing fiction, but also writing uh, scholarly work. And for a long time, I really struggled with what that meant to be both a fiction writer and a scholar, because uh, it's very difficult to reconcile these two worlds, possibly really difficult in the United States. And yet for me, it was really important to try to bring these two worlds together, because they mutually informed each other for me. Fiction was a way of working out dramatically these... Uh, issues of what it meant to be Vietnamese in American society and a Vietnamese-American returning to Vietnam. I grew up very confused, not having an answer to so many questions that arose in my mind about how did the Vietnamese come here to the United States? Uh, Why are there no stories about Vietnamese people? And why is it that when Vietnamese people appear in American stories, we exist mostly to be silenced or to be killed? No one was giving me these kinds of answers, and I had to work them out for myself and in, you know, with, under the tutoring of uh, my professors and my, and my writing teachers. But again, part of the way that I worked it out was through learning how to write fiction, telling my own stories, but also investigating all these questions as a scholar as well. So these are the two books that I'm going to talk about today. The Sympathizer, which is a novel. And uh, the book that just got released, I think, uh, or it was released officially in a couple of days, Nothing Ever Dies, uh, Vietnam in the Memory of War. And what I'm going to do is read a couple of passages from the novel and a very short paragraph from the, uh, the, uh, the nonfiction book. And along the way, I'm going to tell you something of a story uh, about these questions of what it means to be Vietnamese, what it means to be a minority who's writing in the United States, what kind of struggles that I face and I think other minority writers face in the presence of an American society that is, on the one hand, geared to ignore the voices of minorities, of any kind, and on the other hand, occasionally allows these voices to emerge, as happened to me. So when The Sympathizer came out, it was, you know, well-reviewed, for the most part. Um, Not if you go read goodreads.com or amazon.com, that's a different set of readers, but the critics like the book. But one of the earliest reviews was in the New York Times Book Review, and it was a very nice review, But I think the second paragraph said, now we have someone who gives voice to the voiceless. And this is a really common thing to happen to minority writers. Even if there have been voices before from this minority community, every time some new writer emerges from that community, all of a sudden he or she is the voice for the voiceless. And it simply wasn't true, because if you do a five-minute Google search on Vietnamese or Vietnamese American writers, you'll find dozens who have written in English or have been translated into English from Vietnam or here in the United States. And some of them have been very prestigious and well-reviewed. So how is it possible that this book, The Sympathizer, comes along and becomes the voice for the voiceless? I think it's because Americans, again, forget, or they never knew that these voices are already here. You know, Americans, uh, American society as a whole is built around various kinds of inequalities, and one of those, one of those inequalities is narrative inequality. If you're from the majority, you can rest assured that there are thousands and thousands and thousands of stories written about you and that people will understand you and your three-dimensionality and your complexity. But if you're a minority, you don't have that luxury. You live in an economy of narrative scarcity. Very few stories exist about any minority community that you can pick. And so that when one story comes along, everybody thinks, oh, wow, now we have the voice for the voiceless. And the danger in that is that there's a temptation for American readers to just read or hear that one voice and think that they've heard the entire community. And of course, that's not true. And it puts a tremendous burden of representation on the minority writer to speak for the voiceless, even if he or she doesn't want that obligation. So I do the best that I can as I talk about, about my books to assert what you're hearing is my voice, certainly, but I'm not speaking for the voiceless. The Vietnamese are very loud people, but they don't have the access to the means of representation that can get their voices out there. You have to go into the Vietnamese community to hear these voices. You have to go into Vietnamese families to hear these voices, or you have to be able to understand Vietnamese to read the Vietnamese press or watch the Vietnamese news, which exists here in California, right? And so... Let me start off with uh, a pass. Let me tell you a little bit about the novel. The Sympathizer is a novel that begins in April 1975, um, which, for those of you who grew up during that generation, you know exactly what I'm talking about. For those of you who didn't, maybe this is a mysterious date. This is the date when Saigon fell to communism or is liberated from the Americans, depending on your point of view. And our narrator, who tells us this story, is a communist spy in the South Vietnamese Army. So he sees both sides. He understands that Saigon has fallen, and he understands that Saigon is about to be liberated. And his mission is to flee with the remnants of that army to the United States, where he's going to spy on their efforts to try to take their homeland back. And this is all based on things that really happened in the Vietnamese community here in the United States. So he comes to Los Angeles, and he has to make a living in addition to being a spy. And this is where I'm going to read you an excerpt. One of the ways that he makes a living is to become a consultant on the making of an American war epic about the Vietnam War that's going to be shot in the Philippines. And in the passage that I'm going to read to you, um, he's going to uh, encounter this famous director who's going to make this movie, uh, and he's also going to talk to the general and the, the, general and the madam. The general was, is his employer, you know, a man who has been displaced from Vietnam here to the United States. madam is his wife and the director appears only as the auteur. After I descended from the auteur's home to the generals, I reported my first experience with the motion picture industry to the general and madam, both of whom were infuriated on my behalf. My meeting with the auteur had gone on for a while longer, mostly in a more subdued fashion, with me pointing out that the lack of speaking parts for Vietnamese people in a movie set in Vietnam might be interpreted as cultural insensitivity. Do you not think it would be a little more believable, I said, a little more realistic, a little more authentic, for a movie set in a certain country, for the people in that country to have something to say, instead of having your screenplay direct as it does now, cut to villagers speaking in their own language? Do you think it might not be decent to let them actually say something instead of simply acknowledging that there is some kind of sound coming from their mouths? Could you not even just have them speak a heavily accented English? You know what I mean. ching Chong English? Just to pretend they are speaking in an Asian language that somehow American audiences can strangely understand? The auteur grimaced and said, Very interesting. <clears throat> Great stuff. Loved it. But I had a question. What was it? Oh, yes. How many movies have you made? None. Isn't that right? None? Zero? Zilch? Nada? Nothing? And however you say it in your language? So thank you for telling me how to do my job. Now get the hell out of my house and come back after you've made a movie or two. Maybe then. I'll listen to one or two of your cheap ideas. Why was he so rude, Madam said. Didn't he ask you to give him some comments? He was looking for a yes man. He thought I'd give him a rubber stamp of approval. He thought you were going to fawn over him. When I didn't do it, he was hurt. He's an artist. He's got thin skin. So much for your career in Hollywood, the General said. I don't want a career in Hollywood, I said which was true only to the extent that Hollywood did not want me. I confessed to being angry with the auteur, but was I wrong in being angry? This was especially the case when he acknowledged he did not even know that Montagnard was simply a French catch-all term for the dozens of Highland minorities. What if, I said to him, I wrote a screenplay about the American West and simply called all the natives Indians. You'd want to know whether the cavalry was fighting the Navajo or Apache, or Comanche, right? Likewise, I would want to know, when you say these people are Montagnards, whether we speak of the brew or the Nung, or the Tay. Let me tell you a secret, the auteur said. You ready? Here it is. No one gives a shit. He was amused by my wordlessness. To see me without words is like seeing one of those Egyptian felines without hair, a rare and not necessarily desirable occasion. How could I be so dense? How could I be so deluded? I naively believed that I could divert the Hollywood organism from its goal, the simultaneous lobotomization and pickpocketing of the world's audiences. Hollywood did not just make horror movie monsters, it was its own horror movie monster smashing me under its foot. I had failed and the auteur would make The Hamlet, as he intended, with my countrymen serving merely as raw material for an epic about white men saving good yellow people from bad yellow people. I pitied the French for their naivete in believing they had to visit a country in order to exploit it. Hollywood was much more efficient, imagining the countries it wanted to exploit. I was maddened by my helplessness before the auteur's imagination and machinations His arrogance marked something new in the world for this was the first war where the losers would write history instead of the victors, courtesy of the most efficient propaganda machine ever created, with all due respect to Joseph Goebbels and the Nazis who never achieved global domination. Hollywood's high priests understood innately the observation of Milton's Satan, that it was better to rule in hell than serve in heaven. Better to be vic- villain, loser, or antihero than virtuous extra, so long as one commanded the bright lights of center stage. In this forthcoming Hollywood tremble, all the Vietnamese of any side would come out poorly, herded into the roles of the poor, the innocent, the evil, or the corrupt. Our fate was not to be merely mute. We were to be struck dumb. So, I mean, the book is uh, it's a political story, it's a spy novel, it's a, it's a literary novel, it's a historical novel, it's meant to be satirical, a little bit funny, it's meant to be angry, and I, I wrote the book in this way because I, I looked around the American literary landscape and I thought, you know, there are not enough angry minority writers out there, uh, and there's a lot to be angry about. If you're awake, you should be angry at the kinds of injustices that are out there. And for me, it was very intimate that this was injustice that I saw, that this was an unjust war that had brought me here to this country, and that, uh, strangely, Americans thought of this war as something that had done equal damage to both Vietnam and the United States. This was something that Jimmy Carter actually said. The war was a a war of mutual destruction, and it simply wasn't true. 58,000 Americans died, which is a tragedy. Three million Vietnamese people died as well. Americans don't remember that. And so the novel um, wanted to bring these, this kind of these kinds of stories, for uh, front and center to the American uh, view, viewpoint, in a way that was also hopefully entertaining, at the same time. So I'm going to read another excerpt. Um, another thing that happens to that happened to the Vietnamese refugees when they came to the United States, and here in Los Angeles, was that they 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 gave in to um, the fact that they were human beings. They weren't just going to be obsessed you know, with the war, if you know Vietnamese people, they love to sing and dance and drink and have a good time. So one of the first things that they did in coming to Los Angeles was that they opened a nightclub. And that nightclub eventually led to what we have today, a very famous show called Paris by Night, which is a song and dance extravaganza that, you know, is shot in Vegas uh, and Paris and all these exotic locations and it's seen by people all over the world and in Vietnam. And it's a huge production. It's in like its 120th episode by now, I think. So this is the background for what you're going to see here, um, that our narrator is going to go to this nightclub called Fantasia, and he's going to see a young woman there named Lana, who is the forbidden fruit. She is the general's daughter. Now known by just one name, like John, Paul, George, Ringo, and Mary, Lana stepped on stage, clad in a red velvet bustier, a leopard print miniskirt, black lace gloves, and thigh-high leather boots with stiletto heels. My heart would have paused at the boots, the heels, or the flat, smooth slice of her belly, naked in between miniskirt and bustier. But the combination of all three arrested my heart altogether and beat it with the vigor of a Los Angeles police squad. Pouring cognac over my heart freed it, but thus drenched it was easily flambayed by her torch song. She turned on the heat with her first number, the unexpected I'd Love You to Want Me, which I had heard before sung only by men. I'd Love You to Want Me was the theme song of the bachelors and unhappily married males of my generation, whether in the English original or the equally superb French and Vietnamese renditions. What the song expressed so perfectly From lyric to melody was unrequited love. And we men of the South love nothing more than unrequited love. Cracked hearts are primary weakness after cigarettes, coffee, and cognac. Listening to Lana sing, all I wanted was to immolate myself in a night with her to remember forever and ever. Every man in the room shared my emotion. As we watched her do no more than sway at the microphone, her voice enough to move the audience, or rather, to still us. Nobody talked and nobody stirred except to raise a cigarette or a glass. An utter concentration, not broken for her next, slightly more upbeat number. Bang, bang, my baby, shut me down. Lana's version of bang, bang layered English with French and Vietnamese. The last line of the French version echoed Phan Zui's Vietnamese version, we will never forget in the pantheon of classic pop songs from saigon this tricolor rendition was one of the most memorable masterfully weaving together love and violence in the enigmatic story of two lovers who regardless of having known each other since childhood or because of knowing each other since childhood shoot each other down bang bang was a sound of memory's pistol firing into our heads for we could not forget love. We could not forget war. We could not forget lovers. We could not forget enemies. We could not forget home. And we could not forget Saigon. We could not forget the caramel flavor of iced coffee with coarse sugar. The bowls of noodle soup eaten while squatting on the sidewalk. The strumming of a friend's guitar while we swayed on hammocks under coconut trees. The whisper of a dewy lover saying the most seductive words in our language, anoi. The working men who slept in their clothes on the streets, kept warm only by the memories of their families. The refugees who slept on every sidewalk of every city. The sweetness and firmness of a mango plucked fresh from its tree. The girls who refused to talk to us and who we only pine for more. The men who had died or disappeared, the streets and homes blown away by bombshells. The streams where we swam naked and laughing. The secret grove where we spied on the nymphs who bathed and splashed with the innocence of the birds. The shadows cast by candlelight on the walls of wattled huts. The barking of a hungry dog in an abandoned village. The appetizing reek of the fresh durian one wept to eat. The sight and sound of orphans howling by the dead bodies of their mothers and fathers. The stickiness of one's shirt, by the afternoon, the stickiness of one's lover by the end of lovemaking, the stickiness of our situations. And while the list could go on and on and on, the point was simply this, the most important thing we could never forget was that we could never forget. So the book deals a lot with these questions of war and memory, and that's what I take up in uh, Nothing Ever Dies. Um, the, book, the novel took me two years to write. Nothing Ever Dies took me 13 years to write. And the reason why was because I w- wanted to understand the Vietnam War not only through fiction, but as a thinker and as a human being, and someone who was shaped by that history. And the more I delved into it, the more complex it got. I started off thinking I was going to write a book about Vietnam and America and it ended up being a book about Vietnam, America, Cambodia, Laos, South Korea, and all the Southeast Asian diasporas in the United States. Because what I realized was... Even if you get Americans to understand that the Vietnam War happened, they think of it purely as something that happened in Vietnam. They forget about the fact that not just 3 million Vietnamese people died, but that during the course of the war, a million Lotians and Cambodians died because of the way the war f- spilled over into those two countries, instigated by both Vietnam, North Vietnam and the United States. They forget that the U.S. bombing of Cambodia destabilized that society and led directly to the rise of the Khmer Rouge, And the genocide of 1975 to 1979 that killed 2 million more people. So if you think about it, it was such a huge thing to try to get my head around. And I wanted to write a book that uh, was not simply for other academics. I wanted to write a book that would tell us a story, a cultural history about how this war has been remembered and forgotten. And more generally, how we remember and forget things that are difficult and horrible. Now I'll tell you the punchline. The basic secret is, I think, what we want to remember is our own humanity. And what we want to forget is our inhumanity. And what we want to remember about the others that we encounter, enemies, aliens, is that they are inhuman, not that they're human. So the the most difficult thing that we can do is not simply to remember a certain event like this war. The most difficult thing is to remember our capacity for inhumanity. We like to pretend that we can't be inhuman or that when inhuman things happen, it's done by inhuman people who are monsters. But in looking at the history of this war, all the inhuman and monstrous things that were done, whether it's by Americans or Vietnamese or Cambodians or Laotians or South Koreans, they were done by people who were human, who went home to families, who are loved by other people, who would bear the names of Henry Kissinger or just other people, Who are your neighbors, your fathers, your brothers, your sons? And that applies to all communities, not just Americans and Vietnamese. So I just want to read the the opening and the ending of the prologue, just a paragraph. And I'll give you a sense of how this book is written as a story. I was born in Vietnam but made in America. I count myself among those Vietnamese dismayed by America's deeds but tempted to believe in its words. I also count myself among those Americans who often do not know what to make of Vietnam and want to know what to make of it. Americans, as well as many people the world over, tend to mistake Vietnam with the war named in its honor, or dishonor, as the case may be. This confusion has no doubt led to some of my own uncertainty about what it means to be a man with two countries, as well as the inheritor of two revolutions. Today, the Vietnamese and American revolutions manufacture memories only to absolve the hardening of their arteries. For those of us who consider ourselves to be inheritors of one or both of these revolutions, or who have been influenced by them in some way, we have to know how we make memories and how we forget them so that we can beat their hearts back to life. That is the project, or at least the hope, of this book. And so what I do in the book is, you know, I travel to all these different countries. I go to different places where the war has been remembered or forgotten. I look at all kinds of movies and books and histories, speeches about this war from all different kinds of sides. And my personal narrative, my personal story of of going back to Vietnam many times is woven into that. But one of the reasons why I think the book is also relevant is because my understanding of this war is not simply that it was something that happened from 1965 to 1975, but that it really is a part of a much longer history, for, for those of us who are Americans, a much longer history of perpetual warfare that we've been waging since 1898. That was the year that the United States took the Philippines, took Guam, took Puerto Rico, took Hawaii, and expanded the frontier from California all the way out into the Pacific towards China. And that long history is something that we're still dealing with today. We're still concerned with China. All these wars that we fought in the Pacific with Japan, with Korea, with Vietnam have all been part of this grand strategy that the United States had already designed in the late 19th century. And so the Vietnam War really has to be understood as a part of this long history of perpetual warfare that has led us into the New Orient, the Middle East, Afghanistan, Iraq. That's why I hope when you read *The Sympathizer* or when you read, if you read *Nothing Ever Dies*, so many of the things that I'm talking about, I think, still have relevance today because the same things are happening. Right. Um, so that's the story of these two books. That's the story of why I wrote them. I'd be really happy to answer your questions. That, this is the, the, the best part of the, of the of a talk for me. Is not me talking. Is to hear questions from the audience and to hear what you have to say and what your concerns are. Yes, definitely.
2: Uh, one statement and a question. <coughs> Reflecting the American scholar who created his version. My question is, since you writings come out.
0: Yeah. Okay. So the, the the statement was that Chris Burden, a very famous uh, artist, in, from in, you know who died not too long ago, had designed the other Vietnam Memorial, um, which was a rejoinder to the Vietnam Veterans Memorial that Maya Lin created. Um, and how many of you have actually seen the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, the Black Wall in Washington D.C. Right? So you know what that looks like, and that it commemorates fifty-eight thousand American names, and that it is widely regarded as the best example of war memorialization in this country. right? But Chris Burden's point was, what about all the Vietnamese who died, the three million that I've talked about? There's a, there's a photographer named Philip Jones Griffiths, who was is, who is Welsh and he was a very famous photographer during the Vietnam War period, who said, let's put this in context. The Vietnam Veterans Memorial, that wall measures 150 feet? I'm trying to remember, the, 900 feet, I think. If you were to build the same wall for Vietnamese people, it would run nine miles long. And so when we talk about memory and forgetting, the point is is that it's possible for Americans to remember their 58,000 American dead because they have forgotten the three million Vietnamese dead. And that was what Chris Burden wanted to remind Americans about by designing this, what he called the other Vietnam Memorial that had three million Vietnamese names on it. And uh, it's a big pillar with uh, gigantic copper sheets that you can rotate on, on, this, spi- on this, pillar, this this pillar or spindle and it has 3 million Vietnamese names. Now the problem was that he couldn't find 3 million Vietnamese names. So he went to the L.A. phone book, found 4,000 Vietnamese names and repeated them over and over and over again. Which is kind of a problem because these people aren't dead. And so th- he was making a political point, which I think of a, is a very powerful political point. But the fact that he couldn't name the 3 million Vietnamese dead tells us something very crucial. Uh, which is that The American ability to remember 58,000 Americans is a part of an inequality of memory. It's a part of an industry of memory that allows Americans to both manufacture the weapons that can kill 3 million Vietnamese people and remember 58,000 American people with tremendous precision. But all these Southeast Asian countries don't have that industrial capacity. So all these millions of dead Southeast Asians, they can never, probably ever be remembered in the same way simply because we can't keep track of the names, right? So the, the meaning of these memorials are so symbolically important about how it is that memory is tied to industrial capacity, which is one reason why the United States, even though it lost the war, in fact, won the war in memory because of Hollywood, because Vietnam simply can't compete on the global stage. And then the second, the question was, uh, the Vietnamese who got left behind, what did they write, right? And they wrote a lot. Um, and some of what they wrote was you know, actually very subversive and meaningful. So the two books that I would recommend um, that are widely read are uh, Bao Ninh's The Sorrow of War, which is widely regarded as the best novel written about the North Vietnamese soldier's perspective, and it's an anti-war novel. It's about a young idealist who volunteers to go south, and then his, his battalion becomes totally obliterated. The girl he loves is raped, and he's left afterwards a war hero who can't stand being with himself. And this was really a, a huge innovation at the time, because even today, if you go to Vietnam, the only way the war is remembered in public is as a heroic war. So to even think about it in these terms was, was, was really rare. And the fact that he ever got it published was a really rare occasion. Another novel that I was talking about with Professor Wissanata was a novel without a name by the writer Duang Tu Huang, who was also a military veteran, a woman, and a member of the Communist Party, and after the war became so disillusioned that she wrote a series of novels that were critical of the Communist Party. For that, she was called a traitor and a bitch by the Communist Party, uh, suppressed in her own country, and eventually forced into exile. Um, There are many other accounts that are heroic as well, but they're not, even the Vietnamese people aren't thinking about it. There was another question here? Uh, where's the other memorial? The memorial, I think, is last. the one I saw. It was in Chicago at the Contemporary Art Museum in Chicago. So you can actually go and encounter it. But you know, it's a, that means it's a work of art. The Vietnam Veterans Memorial is a public work of art. You can go there at any time, and you can touch the wall. But if you go to see Chris Burden's memorial, I don't know if this is a curatorial move or whether it was designed by the artist. You have to put on a white glove you know, in order to touch the memorial. And that, again, just distances you from these names. Whereas the power of Maya Lin's Vietnam Veterans Memorial is that you can commune with the names on the wall.
1: I just want to say how much I appreciate
0: the and all the you know propaganda that came out, it was still stunning to me evaporated. And the very man who finally maybe in the nineties came around to saying, Yeah, maybe it wasn't such a good idea out I'd face and say now oh we would have won Vietnam if China wouldn't
3: have been you know, now oh no, it it wasn't our history and a willingness
0: well thanks for the comment and I'll, I'll paraphrase that as a question for the sake of the of the audience which is you know have we learned anything from from the vietnam war have americans learned anything and i think i think the answer well i mean it depends on your point of view i think Uh, I think there's at least two lessons that have been extracted from the Vietnam War, and one lesson is the negative one. Let's never do this again. It was a disaster. It was a disaster for the Southeast Asians. It was a disaster for the United States in terms of compromising its ideals, destroying its military, and so on and so forth. And that was a lesson of the anti-war movement, right? And that lesson seems to have, as powerful as it was during the 70s and 80s, seems to have subsided. And one of the reasons why it subsided is because the United States has been on an active campaign since the end of the Vietnam War to erase that lesson. Active campaign. Every single demo- every single president, Democratic or Republican, Jimmy Carter onwards to Barack Obama, has re-narrated this war as a heroic war, a noble sacrifice. They ignore what happened in Vietnam. They say instead we should honor our soldiers. And one of the most powerful slogans that has come out of this time period is this idea that we should Support the troops, even if we oppose the war, which is something that Madison Avenue came up with. It's a perfect slogan because it lets Americans off the hook. We don't, we don't support a war, but we still support our troops. You can't do that. Martin Luther King Jr., who I, the whole prologue is based on his speech beyond Vietnam. How many people have heard the speech beyond Vietnam? How many people have heard, I have a dream? Yeah. Why? I have a dream is soothing to the American soul. It tells us what we want to hear. Go read Beyond Vietnam. That's the speech that the powers that be don't want you to hear. Because this is the Martin Luther King Jr. by 1967 who was radicalized by what happened in Vietnam and what happened in the United States. And he connected domestic and racial inequality in the U.S. that brutalized people of color and sent young black and Latino men and poor white men to go fight in the Vietnam War with the Vietnam War as being a racist war against the Vietnamese. And he called for a revolution in American society. 1968, he was assassinated. Coincidence? I don't think so. But that is a part of the negative lesson that has been erased in American memory, or uh, uh, people attempted to suppress it. Now, the positive lesson drawn by people in government and the Pentagon is that this was a war we almost won if we had just done certain things better, we could have won this war. How could we have done it better? Control the media. Not draft people. Engage in more culturally sensitive warfare. And that's really what happened. General David Petraeus is a veteran of the Vietnam War. He wrote the Army Training Manual in the years afterward that incorporated all these supposed lessons from the Vietnam War and applied them in Iraq and Afghanistan. That's why we don't have widespread media coverage of these wars. We don't have what one critic called the living room war, where unfiltered, uncensored images are projected into our living room. We have highly censored images coming into our living rooms today, and it's all about Americans, or mostly about Americans. Uh, We don't have a draft, so we have an all-volunteer army that bears the entire burden of the war, and 99% of Americans don't have to think about it. And we have a, a politically desensitized population. That's the positive lesson from the Vietnam War that the military-industrial complex has extracted and it's applied it very effectively, as far as I can tell.
4: I'm going to give you the mics. Um, I guess uh, adding on to that that information is uh, how would we can then consider also the attribution of the increasing suicide rate amongst uh, American veterans and also, uh, also I guess, this um, very... Like lack of media coverage of the existing veteran community in the past wars, including Vietnam and uh, and, and uh, Korea.
0: Now that's a great question. One of the things that I um, that I talk about in the book: How do memorials work? You know, we have the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. It commemorates fifty eight thousand dead dead Americans, right? Uh, it doesn't commemorate all those veterans who committed suicide, who are disabled, who suffer from trauma who are homeless, because we don't want to remember those people. We want to think that a war begins and ends, 1965, 1975, it's over, and then we don't have to worry about it anymore. That's what memorials help us to do. They help us actually not only to remember, but to forget. And in the case of war memorials or soldiers' memorials, they help us to forget the fact that war doesn't end simply because the politicians say that it does. And that for many veterans and for many civilians who are deeply traumatized or affected by their loved ones who went to war, the war continues forever, oftentimes. Right? So memorials contain meaning. And that happens today in Iraq and Afghanistan, too. We like to think that war's a neat business, the soldiers have come home and everything, uh, or that there only four or 5,000 soldiers died during the, during the fighting. Right. I think it's roughly around 5,000 soldiers. We have no idea, most people, how many veterans are disabled or who have committed suicide. could number in the thousands, for all that we know. And likewise, the other thing that I would add to that is, again, memorials help us to remember soldiers, even though wars actually affect civilians. So if you know know any Southeast Asians who have come to the United States and you ask them how they came here, every single one of those people has a horrible story to tell you. So the irony is that, you know, hundreds of thousands of American soldiers went to fight in the Vietnam War. Only a fraction, fraction of them actually saw combat. That means most of them just sat around a military base somewhere. Nothing happened to them. All those Southeast Asians who are here present in the United States, all of them saw something terrible. That totally demonstrates that war simply can't be imagined as something that affects soldiers. For most people in the world outside of the United States, war affects civilians. And military memorials obliterate that reality of war.
5: Uh, I'm sorry, it's not in the form of a question. It's more of a statement, but... Um, I was against the war, late 60s and early 70s. I just want you to know we did not forget the lessons from that. I mean, there are a lot of us still, and um, it really um, helped me to understand my own people's uh, tragedy, which was never talked about when I was growing up. And it gave me the You know the oomph or something when I started to 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 study the Vietnam, the whole history of the struggle of the Vietnamese people, the whole you know the the length of it, which is amazing. Um, All the all the many struggles uh, that I was then able started to read about my own people's uh, fighting back, and that just really gave me such a um, something that I needed. um, You know, and I'm talking about World War II fighting back, not anything biblical, um, the Jews. So, you know, it just uh, helped me. I read all the stories of people who fought back. And um, anyway, it really just directly connected with our studies of the Vietnam War and, you know, helping us to fight against that in Madison, Wisconsin, where I was, and Cal State L.A.
0: Well, I think that the people who lived through that time period haven't forgotten. But the people who've been born after that time period, whether they're in Vietnam or the United States, have no... Clue.
5: Well, we try to help carry the remembrance.
0: Absolutely. But the point is is that society as a whole, whether it's in Vietnam or the United States, is not designed to help people remember something that is such a difficult event. So both Vietnamese and American societies have their own versions of erasing the past in different ways, so that most young Vietnamese people, and most of the people in Vietnam are young, born after the period of the war, know nothing about the war and don't want to know anything about the war, because they associate of the war with, you know, old people telling them boring stories about heroes. And here in the United States, I think I'm, I'm, I'm projecting, but young Americans, I think, have many other distractions on their time. And trying to think about something unpleasant and difficult is, is, is not something that, that they want to do. And the teachers who are supposed to teach them aren't teaching them. I mean, from what I can tell, surveying my students, in U.S. high school history classes, the Vietnam War is not taught or taught for a day. Right. How are you supposed to get at this important event in one day? And another question about, um, you know, connections with other communities. Like I said, I started off my intellectual journey with Chikang Studies. And from there, I was able to connect through African-American studies. Uh, this book, the title, Nothing Ever Dies, it's a direct quotation from Toni Morrison's Beloved. And the prologue is built mostly around Martin Luther King Jr.'s speech. So part of what, you know, I, I think of, when I think of myself as a writer... And as a scholar, I think, I'm not only thinking about Vietnamese people, I'm thinking about how my experiences have been shaped by multitudes of different experiences that have made me possible. So not just Vietnamese people, but the Shokanos and African-Americans for social justice have paved the way for the work that I've done. And the experiences of uh, Jewish people, either as minorities in the United States or as people who fled Europe or immigrants is important, too. The last page of this book, Nothing Ever Dies, from Art Spiegelman's Mouse. I don't have, have, have read Mouse. You, if you haven't read it, you should read it. It's a comic book. You can read it in a day. And it's about the Holocaust. It's an incredibly moving book. you know. But in his um, accounting of writing that book, Art Spiegelman says you know, he wanted to go back to Europe to see where his, his father, in Poland, to see where his father had lived. And his father said, don't go back there. They kill Jews there, as if time hasn't changed. And, when I, and I, the story that I tell in the last pages, I is I tell my dad I'm going back to Vietnam. He says, don't go back there. I said, I want to go back to my hometown where I was born. He says, don't go back there. And I've been back to Vietnam, and I, I've been all over the country, but I cannot go back to the where I was born because I can't get this injunction from my father out of my mind because he, like Art Spiegelman's father, is traumatized by history too. Right. And he can't, even though times have changed, he can't let go of that past, and because of that, I can't let go of that past.
4: I have a question regarding your creative writing process, and how did um, your academic um, background help you with writing a fiction book?
0: Well, um, it helped me because I take seriously the idea that we can study literature as critics, as students, as scholars, in ways that can help us be better writers, Okay. So, for example, when I wrote this novel, I was really aware of the different kinds of genres that it fit in. Vietnam War literature, Asian American literature, for example. And I had studied these bodies of writing extensively. So I knew what the patterns were, and I knew what the cliches were. And that was really crucial um, to writing a novel that avoided the cliches Of these genres. I'll give you an example. Asian American literature, it's a growing genre. It's it's getting more and more influential. More and more Asian American writers are getting recognized and published. But it's not a very angry literature. Because if you're an Asian American writer and you want to publish in this country, the easiest story that you can tell is um, I came from Asia or my parents came from Asia. Asia sucked. It's bad for women. It's oppressive. You come to the United States, your immigrant parents struggle, and it's a country of liberation and freedom. That's the basic narrative that'll get you published in New York City. That's a narrative that I refuse to do in this book. So if you're a creative writer, of course you need to learn how to write your fiction or poetry or whatever. You also need to read extensively and study the body of writing that you think you fit in so that you know your literary history, you've seen what other writers have done, and you can make a judgment about what worked and what didn't work for you so you don't do the same things. All the perspectives that you had. Cool. the question was did it help me with did that help me with the critics? I think so, because I think that um, the book has resonated really well for literature professors, as far as I can tell, you know it 's being taught in undergraduate and graduate seminars, and um, I think it 's because uh, I, I, I think the novel can just be read on the surface for what it is, which is you know political novel, historical novel, thriller, but underneath there 's all kinds of allusions and references that are happening to various kinds of literary histories and theoretical and philosophical issues. You don't have to know these kinds of things. But if you do, it adds all these kinds of layers. And that is an outcome of all that scholarly work as well. And there's also all kinds of references to American literary history, Asian American literature. And again, if you know, if you know these, these literatures, then you can see what the book is doing. And that makes it a, a richer book for the reader, hopefully a richer book for the writer. The more you know, the more you can have fun writing your work and play games uh, uh, with the stories that you tell.
3: Hi, so I was just, wanna, I wanted to ask, like, as a student, you know, we, we for research papers and all, the research is very different from what from what you did. You said you, you, you did some traveling, you went to the country, 13 years to write, um, nothing ever dies. How was it, like, reconnecting with, with your culture or, like, you know, seeing it from, not from, a, like, like a mixed standpoint, but just being in Vietnam and, you know, trying to, like, recapture all the, all the emotion and you know, making it as realistic as you possibly can?
0: Well, I think that, you know, uh, many people have this idea that they're going to go back to their homeland and they're going to all of a sudden be reconnected with their culture, you know, um, literally fall down and kiss the earth of the motherland from which they came. And that didn't happen. I, I, I before I would go back, that's not going to happen for me. I don't have any romantic ideas about going back to Vietnam and becoming 100% Vietnamese. And that's exactly right. That didn't happen. Um, I thought that going back would be both rewarding but also really challenging, and it was. You know, you go back as a tourist. It's a a fun country to visit. It's cheap. You have a great time. You know, I had a great time for quite a while. But it's also a challenging country if you're conscious. You know, if you go past the resorts and the nightclubs and the hostels and all that kind of stuff, and you start thinking about the history of the country and about... um, the ironies and contradictions of the country, which every country has, right? So the irony and the contradiction of Vietnam is that they fought this horrifying war, you know, three million people died for the sake of unifying and liberating this country for greater freedom and independence. The, the slogan that is all over the place is by Ho Chi Minh. Nothing is more precious than independence and freedom. You go back, you look around, the country's not independent, it's not free, it's a communist society that's actually a capitalist society in practice, so it has all these ideals about brotherhood and equality, but it's actually a, a deeply unequal society politically and economically and socially. That's what part of what is challenging about it.
3: Um, being from Singapore, like S- Singapore's independence was constructed on you know the climax of the Vietnamese war. So I mean, it's 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 very sad and unfortunate. All the all the bad things happen, but to see like other countries, you know learn and not make the same mistake is, you know, is a shining light. That's, that's how I feel. And I don't know if...
0: I went to Singapore for three months in 2014. I was a little frightened. It's such a beautiful, smooth, polished country. I felt like I was always under observation. And of course, as an outsider, I look at Singapore and I think beautiful country, but also riven by all kinds of inequalities that are totally visible on the surface to an outsider, you know, like the employment of outside workers and all this kind of stuff. And you're right that, One of the reasons why the Vietnam War was fought, which almost everyone wants to pretend didn't happen, was that it was fought to develop Asia as a capitalist region. So Vietnam, the war was was fought there in order to build a firewall that would allow Japan to flourish, and secondarily, South Korea to flourish, and then all the other Asian countries, including Singapore, Indonesia, Malaysia, their economic takeoff in the 1970s, 1980s was made possible because of the war that was fought in Vietnam, in which they all participated one way or another, usually as some kind of economic collaborator or even military staging base uh, with the United States. And Singapore, I think, served as a rest and recreation center.
3: in R&R for, right. the, for the Americans, and the, yeah. 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 So
1: our, our
0: history is interconnected, but we would like to f- pretend that it
1: isn't. I have a question, Viet. Um, your novel is in the first person. Uh, it's a confession of the protagonist telling his story. I wanted to you to talk a little bit about that first-person account and what, as an artist, as a, as a, as a narrator, or as an author, uh, what were the challenges, what were the benefits of a first-person narrative?
0: Um, well, I was, working, I was thinking of myself working within literary genres like the spy novel and the hard-boiled detective story, the thriller story, and oftentimes these are written as first-person stories. You live entirely within the voice of your, of your narrator. And I enjoy those kinds of stories. Also, I was thinking of existentialist fiction as well, like The Stranger by Camus, all from the first-person point of view. So the novel's supposed to resonate in all those different levels. And the challenge that that posed was I had to have a voice in the novel that would be seductive and persuasive for the reader, because they would have to live with that voice the entire way. So I spent a summer trying to come up with the opening scenario for the novel, and the opening line. So I went through all these different scenarios, tried out all these different opening lines, and when I got the opening line of the novel, I knew that was it. I knew that was gonna be the voice that would carry me all the way through. And the opening line is, I'm a spy, a sleeper, a spook, a man of two faces. And so the entire novel, the entire dilemma of our, of our protagonist is encapsulated in that opening line, and the rhythm of the entire novel is encapsulated in that opening sentence. So it was, a, it was definitely a struggle to try to find that, but it was, it was worth it, because once I did, then it's a, the novel didn't quite write itself, but it definitely sm- mostly flowed very smoothly after that. Question here?
2: Thank you. Um, my, we argued every night. You're t- you were talking about how we saw the images coming in every night, and you know I was a high school student. I had high school students I went to school with were drafted right after we got out of high school, and my father's younger brother, who lived with us, went to Vietnam and came back addicted to heroin and abandoned his family. It felt like Vietnam was like the drumbeat in my growing up because it started when I was so young and was still going on when I went away to college. But I love that you made the connection that money's always involved because we were saying that back then when we were marching. We were like, it's all about empire, and empire's about money. And America will always make war, war will always make money for America. It just feels kind of, I don't know, I feel helpless. I feel like I'm not in a representative democracy anymore. It's like vote for puppet A or vote for puppet B. But nobody is representing us anymore. I think there are a lot of Americans who were against the Vietnam War. I mean, we were just, we were just kids, and we were saying, why, why are we going there? Why are we going there? And no one would answer us. you know. But they drafted the boys I went to school with. I, I don't know what my question is except how do we get beyond being this sort of hopeless, fail I feel like we're a failed democracy.
0: Well, I talk about that in, in Nothing Ever Dies, actually. I talk about what it means to tell a true war story. So this, this is a riff on Tim O'Brien's uh, chapter in The Things They Carried, which is a classic of the, of the American literature of the war. It has a chapter on true war stories, and he tells you all the different things, all the different permutations of the true war story. that's nasty, that it's fun, thrilling, drudgery, and so on. One thing he doesn't say is that wars are profitable. And that's the truest war story of all. The reason we go to fight wars may be for all kinds of different reasons, but one of the reasons at the core is because we want to take something from somebody else or we want to make money off of this endeavor. And that's a really terrifying thing to try to wrap your mind around because at least in our society, my thinking, it it agrees with yours, is that we do live in a military industrial complex. That was Dwight D. Eisenhower that coined that term as Republican general. And we live in a society that is geared to fight wars, and we've come to accept that as normal. We don't blink an eye that our military budget is greater than the military budgets of all the next 10 or 20 countries combined, right? And so our, our society functions on war, but we don't like to think of it in those terms. So one of the writers, Maxine on Kingston, I, I, I quote her a few times. I think she's one of our writers who has really tried to confront what that means to live in a society, and she was of the Vietnam War generation, to live in a society that's built on war, so she has a passage in uh, her book, *Chinamen*. Men, with a section called The Brother in Vietnam. One of her brothers goes to fight in the Vietnam War. And she talks about in that book about how when you open the refrigerator, you're supporting the war effort because the refrigerator is a part of the military-industrial complex or all that stuff in your refrigerator is manufactured by companies that have ties to the military-industrial complex. Dow Chemical made Agent Orange. Dow Chemical also makes all kinds of chemicals that we use in our everyday lives, Right? So her point there is that war is inescapable. Americans like to think that war is what happens on that TV screen over there somewhere else. We we, we get these volunteers, we send them to fight. That's war. But Kingston and I agree that that's not war. That's only a part of war. War is total war that incorporates all of us through our complicity by paying taxes and by voting for A or B and by being pacified in that way. And what that means is that the real horror of war is not only that it's all blood and guts, which is how we like to think about it, war is hell, which never stopped us from going to war. What's really terrifying is that war is boring. War is a part of our everyday lives. That's the reality that Americans don't want to confront. They'd rather watch American Sniper and think that's the true war story when the true war story is Halliburton. And how do we get around? I mean, I think I try to end on an optimistic note. I try to imagine, I argue that, you know, we have to remember. We have to remember not just a specific war. We have to remember the total war of which is a part we have to remember the perpetual war that i was talking about and we have to remember our capacity for inhumanity american sniper i'm sure many of you have seen the movie tells the basic story we're human they're inhuman we we can kill a whole bunch of people but we do it for good reasons and that's precisely the story that we should be refusing the story that we should be remembering is that that american sniper he kills 160 people because of inhumanity not because of humanity and that doesn't make him any better or worse than anybody else. That makes him a part of American society, of which we are a part, because we condone that kind of thing. And once we realize that, then we have the basis for not just an anti-war movement, but a peace movement, which is not easy. So the answer is not easy. I think we, have, we, have, we, we, we sort of have a sense of what that involves. It just means a lot of work that your generation, your generation went through, right, and which we have to do over again. That's the hard part. There's a question in the back by a gentleman who hasn't asked a question yet. We've discussed uh,
2: much about the monetary uh, part of uh, war, but what about uh, religion uh, and perhaps in the context of Israel or, once again, religion? So uh, how does that segue uh, with uh, money?
0: Wow. Um, Okay, let me start by saying that I'm a Catholic I was born into a Catholic family, and the sympathizer is suffused with all kinds of Catholic themes and symbols. And the reason why that becomes important, the reason why it's not an accident of history that I'm here as a Catholic, is that the French colonized Vietnam, introduced Catholicism into that country, created a Catholic minority, which when the United States came in in 1954, the United States elevated that Catholic minority into its ally. And President Dinh ziem who was the American... uh, uh, the president that the Americans supported was a Catholic who was supported by American Catholics. So even before we start talking about Islam or you know, anything else of the contemporary period, we have to acknowledge that religion has always been important in these kinds of efforts by the French, by the Americans, by the West to extend their influence into different kinds of countries. And it just, was, it just that was back then it happened to be Catholicism. That was the tool. And Buddhism, that was the religion that Americans feared. You know, you know, the, the famous image of the Buddhist monk immolating himself In 1963, that I'm sure all of you have seen, that monk was immolating himself in protest against the Catholic president that the Americans supported. It just happens to be the case then that when we Vietnamese refugees came to the United States, many of and Catholicism made us more uh, comfortable for other Americans to be around. It overcame the American fear of the Vietnamese as other, which was definitely present when these refugees arrived. So then we get to the question of Islam. Because Islam is not considered to be a part of the American fabric, it's considered to be a a religion that's utterly alien to the United States. That compounds all these other questions of ethnic and national differences that are a part of the conversation today about what the U.S. is doing overseas and whether or not we should bring uh, refugees from predominantly Muslim countries into the United States. It seems as if People of of an Islamic religion are more terrifying and scary than people of other religions. But I don't think it's true. If we look back at our history, we were utterly terrified of communists and Buddhists because they were different. It's only when somebody newer and more terrifying comes along that we think, oh, the communists aren't so bad. Actually, now anti-communism seems seems rather quaint, right? Anti-Buddhism seems rather quaint. The fear of Buddhists seems absurd. Now we, now we know your neighbor next door, who's white, practices yoga and Buddhism. Two hundred years ago, Indians and or uh, 150 years ago, Indians and Chinese weren't even allowed into this country. So it's only because Islam is the newest, most dangerous, incomprehensible other that we think of Islam specifically as something that we can't assimilate into American society. But I don't think that's right. It's just simply that we've given in to our fear of otherness and strangeness, and it takes the face of Islam.
4: Thanks. I, I guess this is a question that kind of goes back to
0: Coppola, I would assume, is who you're referring to and what you think Hollywood has learned. If your book were to be optioned and you, had, you could make a list of non-negotiables,
3: what do you think that list would be?
0: I think I could make that kind of list, and then Hollywood would screw me anyway. That's my I question. Think, think is, that what do you be, think they would, try to would screw the, you over on? Yeah, that would be the poetic justice. You know, Francis Ford Coppola. My my idea of poetic justice is Francis Ford Coppola buys the, buys the rights for a million dollars and then screws me over by making some horrible film. Okay, and I I would deserve it, right? I'll take the million dollars. Um, but actually, um, my agent uh, has other writers who've sold books to Hollywood and so on. And you know, he came out and we did a very Hollywood lunch at the Four Seasons, and uh, he said book's never going to be made into a movie. <laughs> it's like the reality. Uh, I think from his point of view, it's because Hollywood has satirized so much in the book. But from my point of view, it's that it's just a really difficult story to make a two to three hour movie out of. Maybe Netflix could do a 10 part series. That would sort of be the fantasy. But I really don't have any uh,
4: illusions that that's going to happen. Thank you. Hart. Uh, I'm, I'm intrigued by your your story of your travels in Vietnam and I spent a semester there teaching in, uh, at the Vietnam National University, Ho Chi Minh City. And I, I was invited to dinner uh, by uh, the father of the uh, postdoc physics student who had arranged the teaching position for me. And one of the guests was uh, Ninh's sister. And um, we talked about the possibility of inviting him to the United States, even though he's currently, for the last, I don't know what it's been, 10 years stripped of his visa because of problems, perception problems with it, with the book he wrote, the Sorrow of War. But there is a possibility if USC invited him <laughs> that it, it could work. We, we invited Le Van Bang, the Vietnamese ambassador, to speak here back when he first opened up his office in DC. and I asked him if he would help us get Nin a visa, and he said he would. Now, he's not all the ambassador anymore, but USC has far more juice than SMC <laughs> in terms of international invitations. And maybe the heat is off of uh, Nin now. And I still think he's probably the greatest of the war writers Of that era, including the Americans like Philip Puto and Ron Kovic and Tim O'Brien. So I say that just as one who thinks things that you do with your writing and speaking uh, are very valuable educationally, uh, keeping these issues alive and uh, of significance in people's minds. And I think bringing one of the most uh, uh, important writers of that era here would be uh, an extraordinary coup if you could find a way to do it
0: I hope so um, you know we did bring to USC the preeminent Vietnamese director of the revolutionary generation yet Minh who made a very well, beautiful movie called when the tenth month comes which is you know a film about the tragedy of war and sorrow and all of that and who we who brought him to USC in order to promote his new film uh, at the time, which was uh, Don't Burn, based on a memoir of a Vietnamese woman doctor who was killed in the war. And I bring this up because, you know, number one, it's possible to do it, and number two, just to tell this little anecdote, you, you know, this was, this was a movie that was meant to be a reconciliation effort between the Americans and the Vietnamese because it featured both American and Vietnamese actors. And Daniel Nguyen said, oh, yeah, when the movie came out in Vietnam, it came out the same weekend that Transformer 2 came out and we were crushed like a bicycle. (laughs) Uh, So the plight of Bao Ninh and the plight of Deng Yat Minh, Bao Ninh restricted in his own country, his novel is hard to access. Deng Yat Minh, who who makes an epic movie to try to reconcile the two sides, ends up, you know, wiped out by American popular culture that the Vietnamese people themselves support. The Vietnamese people themselves would rather see Transformers 2 rather than a movie by one of their own. So I don't know know where I'm going with that, but the, the hurdles are high in many respects.
1: Well, ladies and gentlemen, I think you'll join me in thanking Beard for a wonderfully moving and stimulating and thought-provoking presentation. I just want to share with you one more excerpt from the novel, uh, which I think speaks to many of the issues that we have been talking about. Of the three types of forgetting, this was the worst. To know what one had forgotten was common as was the case with dates of history, mathematical formulas, and people's names. To forget without knowing one has forgotten must be even more common, or maybe less, but it is merciful. In this case, one cannot realize what is lost. But to know that one has forgotten something without knowing what what that something was made me shudder. I have lost something, I said. Pain getting the better of me and making itself audible in my voice, I've lost a piece of my mind. But, Viet, once again, as you have demonstrated through your novel and your work, art is a way to remember. I think that is ultimately our own redemption. Uh, And so I thank you for your work and your efforts in helping us remember, which I think is ultimately what will save us. So on behalf of the college, I want to offer you this token of our appreciation, Thank you so much for coming, and thank you for coming.
0: Thank you to all of you. Thank you, Professor Vesnato. It was a pleasure.